This morning we find ourselves not in 1 Samuel, but in 2 Timothy, uh, in uh, looking for a, a passage, and a sermon that we had uh, gone over before, uh, something that would uh, ease the load uh, on your pastor this morning, uh, or this week rather. I thought that this passage would be a good one for us to consider in light of a uh, sermon a few, from a few weeks ago, where we were reminded of the Christian's chief duty. Remember, remember uh, the Lord's faithfulness to us, His grace to us, His mercies to us, to remind ourselves of that. And so that's, uh, that's what we uh, will do this morning as we consider 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. Now if you're there, if you've already turned in your Bibles to 2 Timothy, hold your spot there and then turn uh, back to the Old Testament, uh, to uh, Psalm 78. This will be our scripture reading this morning, Psalm 78, verses 9 to 20. Psalm 78, verses 9 to 20. That's our scripture reading. And then our sermon passage is 2 Timothy 2, 8 to 13. Brothers and sisters, if you've ever longed for the Lord to speak to you, guess what? He is now going to speak to you. Not not me, not my words. The Lord speaks to His people through His Word, through His inscripturated Word, through the Bible. Please give your full attention to the reading of God's word, for it is the Lord himself speaking to his people. Psalm 78, verses 9 to 20. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan, he divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and at all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them to drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him. Rebelling against the Most High in the desert, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can He also give bread or provide meat for His people? Now, turning, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 8 and reading through verse 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired, perfect, inerrant Word. Let us pray.
Gracious God and Father, we are thankful that you have set forth your word, that you wrote it down, that you put it in permanent form, that here some 2,000 years, nearly 2,000 years after the last of it was written and recorded, we still have it, Lord. It's bound. It's been published, printed on paper. We hold it in our hands. We are grateful for it, O Lord. We're grateful for all that it says, for everything that it teaches. And we know, Lord, that primarily it teaches us about you, even as it tells stories, as it, as it recounts history of events that took place. Primarily, Lord, you are the subject. You are the one about whom it is written. It tells your story of how you saved us. And we pray, dear Lord, that it would be useful for us, that we would make full use of it in our lives to remind ourselves of what you have done, to remember you. And specifically, O Lord, in light of our passage this morning, to remember the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the Son of David. We pray that you would help us and that this passage and, and the sermon the Word of God preached that it would be encouraging to us, but especially, Lord, that it would be glorifying of Your holy name. So help us to worship You, O Lord, as Your Word is now preached, and build us up in our faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. When you are struggling in your faith, in your life, and so often these two things are intertwined, aren't they? When you're struggling in your life, when you're in a funk, when you're down, perhaps it's due to physical infirmity, perhaps it's due to circumstances that have brought on deep depression, anxiety. When you are struggling in your life, when you're sorrowful, when you are miserable, what do you do? How do you deal with it? How do you cope? What are the coping mechanisms that you employ to help get yourself through a dark, troubling time in your life. Well, some of you, no doubt, you have good systems in place. You have, you have learned over the course of your life to recognize those, those characteristics that are, that, are, that are signs and symptoms of, of entering into a period, perhaps, of straying, a period of, of struggle, a period of... of of doubt, and you recognize that, and you and you know the things that you need to do. You employ those things. You use the tactics in your life. But others of you, I have to include myself here, we're not necessarily cognizant of that time. Those times when we are, we're on the descent. Sometimes it's the case that troubles they sneak up on us. They're like the wave that crashes on our backs as we're standing at the sea and we're facing the shore, we're facing the land, and the, the wave breaks and knocks us down and it catches us unawares. And how do we deal with it? How do we cope? Well, the passage before us today, it teaches us the best way, the best coping mechanism for dealing with trouble, whatever that trouble may be whether it's the breaking down of the body, 
whether it's the breaking down of the mind, whether it's the descent into deep and dark depression, the passage that we have before us, it it tells us how to work through that. And the coping mechanism is not enough, is it? But it's something. It's language that at least some of us understand. Now, throughout the book of 2 Timothy, and I don't necessarily expect that, that, that you've read through this book anytime recently. Perhaps some of you have, some of you haven't. But you, you may remember from our time in it several years ago now that Paul gives many commands, imperatives. He speaks often in the imperative mood. He's, he's telling people what to do. And because it's in the Bible, because Paul was an apostle, it is a command from the Lord. It, it carries that divine force that's behind it. it it's, it's similar, it's, it's really the same, we must say, as those commands that you find in Exodus chapter 22, the Ten Commandments. Now, in our passage this morning, in, in 2, Timothy 8, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 8 to 13, we come across the fifth command in chapter 2 alone. He's given many commands prior to this. And Paul commands Timothy in verse 8 to remember. That is in the imperative voice there. Remember. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And this command is preceded by the previous commands to be strengthened in verse 1, to entrust to faithful men in verse 2, to share in suffering in verse 3, to think over what Paul has said to Timothy in verse 7, and now to remember Jesus Christ. Now to remind us of the context, the historical context here, Timothy is a young pastor, and, and he's suffering, like Paul, for the sake of the gospel. And apparently he's hit some some very tumultuous times in his pastorate. And Paul is calling on Timothy not to abandon the ministry that the Lord has given to him, not to, not to abandon the gospel, the, the, the work of the gospel, but to endure, to persevere through this suffering. And so how is he going to do it? Paul gives him the answer in the form of a command. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is reminding Timothy that Jesus suffered for him just as Jesus suffered for everyone else who believes in him. And this reminder is intended to help Timothy endure his own suffering. And so Paul is putting it in in this kind of of, of term. He's framing it this way. It is Timothy's duty to remember Jesus Christ That's what Paul commands Timothy to do in verse 8. He's to remember Jesus risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Now, we finally made it to what I want you to think about, to consider, to remember. If you remember one thing, remember this from the sermon today. Jesus Christ is worthy of remembrance because he was raised from the dead for the salvation of his people. Jesus Christ is worthy of remembrance because he was raised from the dead for the salvation of his people. So the sermon is just divided into two parts today. It doesn't make it any shorter, but they're just two points. Uh, The first is remember Jesus Christ. And the second is a trustworthy saying. Again, the first point, remember Jesus Christ. 
And the second point, a trustworthy saying. So let's look at uh, this first, por- first point, the first portion of the sermon, remember Jesus Christ. The first word in our passage this morning is a command. It's an imperative. Remember. It's right there. He front loads it in the verse, in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. Paul is commanding Timothy to remember Jesus and specifically to remember that he is risen from the dead and that he is the son of David. Now in this brief letter, and and this passage that we're in this morning is barely into the brief letter, Paul has been doing a lot of reminding and remembering so far. In chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, Paul commanded commanded Timothy to fan into flame the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's clear from the context of that passage in verses 3 to 7 of chapter 1 that Timothy was to fan this gift into flame. He was to do so by remembering Jesus and what he had done to accomplish salvation. How does he fan this gift into flame? He remembers the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verses 8 to 14, Paul spelled out for Timothy some of the specifics that he was to remember to keep in mind. And there he reminded Timothy of God's plan of redemption. He reminded Timothy of Jesus Christ, who in the words of chapter 1, verse 10, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so in the midst of Timothy's suffering, Paul redirects his thinking where? Does he, does he drill down into to Timothy's suffering? Does he, does he commiserate with Timothy? Well, he might have. He might have had he been there with Timothy. Certainly Paul understands the kind of suffering that Timothy is experiencing. But in this brief letter, this, this epistle to Timothy, he doesn't, he doesn't drill down into the suffering. He drills down into who Jesus Christ is. He redirects Timothy's thinking back to Jesus Christ over and over again in this letter. And so it's not enough for Timothy to occasionally sort of passively think about Jesus Christ. Instead, Paul commands Timothy actively to remember him, deliberately to remember him. But how could Timothy possibly forget Jesus Christ? How's that possible? Well, remembering requires work. That's why it's a command in our passage. To remember something means that you have to commit it to memory. You have to memorize it. Now, for you younger folks, memorizing things, it comes easily, I think. It's not too hard. But for those of us who are a bit older, it gets a little more difficult to get something to stick in your brain. It's almost as if your brain becomes coated with Teflon. And anything you try to put on it, it just slides right off. It won't stay. Also, human memory is notoriously fickle. And the Old Testament is replete with instances where God's people forgot about Him. The theologians talk about the noetic effects of sin. And what that means is it's the way that sin negatively affects the human mind. That the human mind would be far superior to what it is now had Adam and Eve, our first parents, and Adam, our representative head, uh, in the garden had he not fallen into sin. It, sin sinfulness, the estate of sin, it affects our thinking as well as causing our bodies to break down over time. And so our poor memory must be the result of the noetic effects of sin. And so we can look forward to that day when we go to be with the Lord and our, and our memories, they're perfected. There are no lapses. There, nothing drops out. 
And with regard to remembering Jesus, Timothy was more like us than he was like Paul. Why is that? Well, Paul had had, even though he was what he describes as the last of the apostles, the least of the apostles, he himself, and this is what makes him an, an apostle, he had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. Now, granted, it wasn't while, while Jesus, it wasn't prior to his resurrection, it wasn't prior to his crucifixion and his death, it was afterwards, but still, Paul had an encounter, a face-to-face encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was, this encounter it was indelibly etched on his memory when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. We're like Timothy, or Timothy, I should say, is like us. He had heard about Jesus from other people, but he never met him face to face. And so for Timothy, as for us, remembering Jesus required work. It required actively engaging his mind. It required him going back to those things that he'd been taught. And Paul talks about this earlier in uh, chapter 2. He says in verse 7, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think it over. Turn it over in your mind. Ruminate on it. What does that mean? Well, what is a ruminant animal? It's an animal that, that chews cud. It's an animal with four stomachs. It's an animal that, that, whose digestion is very, very slow. And I would suggest to you that human mental digestion is, is the equivalent of a, of a ruminant's digestion. It takes some time for us to fully digest what we've been taught. It requires us to actively engage our minds. Now in Psalms 77 and 78, these psalms were both written by Asaph. These psalms provide for us a study in contrast. We read each or portions of each of these psalms in the worship service today. Psalm 78, which is our scripture reading, it describes how the tribe of Ephraim forgot the wonders that God had shown them. And, and there's almost a consequence of this, for, forget, this forgetfulness on the part of the tribe of Ephraim. They rebelled against the Lord. It's not stated explicitly in Psalm 78, but it seems to be the clear conclusion. They forgot and they rebelled. They tested God. They doubted God. But in Psalm 77, which was our responsive reading this morning, Asaph wonders if God has forgotten him. But instead of becoming bitter, and I think... Many of us, if not most of us, if not all of us, confess that those times when we feel like God has abandoned us, like He's just left us alone, the temptation is very much there to become embittered toward the Lord. He's abandoned me. Instead of becoming bitter, instead of rebelling against, uh, uh, because of his perception that God is forgetful, Asaph deliberately <clears throat> remembers the good things, the wonders of the Lord. That is an antidote to becoming bitter with the Lord. He reminds himself of all that God has done. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. That word, meditate, it's not the same as ruminate, but it's got got some overlap, doesn't it? I'm going to turn this over in my mind. I'm going to look at it from all angles. I'm going to consider it from every direction. I'm going to dwell on it. It is our Christian duty. It is your Christian duty, my Christian duty, to remind ourselves of the gracious, saving work of the Lord. If you don't remember any of the other commandments of the Lord right now, remember this one. 
is your duty to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. But what specifically are we to remember about Jesus? Well, finally, we're, we're looking more closely at verse 8. There Paul tells Timothy to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. This epitomizes, this summarizes, this, this is perhaps the pinnacle of what it is that we are supposed to remember about Jesus, what we're supposed to remind ourselves These two phrases, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, these two phrases give a full account of the gospel. As John Stott says in his commentary on this passage, the birth, the death, and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus are all implicit in these two phrases. They remind remind us of the person of Jesus, that he is the Son of God and the Son of Man, that he is the eternal Son of God who took on flesh in the incarnation, that he became human. He added to his divine nature a human nature. And it reminds us of his work, of his perfect obedience to his Father, both throughout his life, but also in his dying on the cross, going willingly to the cross to die. First, his person. The phrase risen from the dead reminds us that Jesus is divine because he was powerful, powerfully designated God's son by his resurrection from the dead. Where is your proof that Jesus Christ is the son of God? It's the resurrection, isn't it? That's what Paul says. If you don't have the resurrection, if somehow it could be proved that the body of Jesus is still in the grave somewhere there around Jerusalem, if it could be proved, then the Christian religion, the Christian faith falls apart. risen from the dead. That proves that he is divine. That proves that he is the the eternal son of God. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 4, that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So Paul reminds Timothy of Jesus's divinity But he also reminds him of his humanity. He says that Jesus is what? The offspring of David. And so Paul is reminding Timothy that Jesus is a physical descendant of King David. But it also serves as a reminder of the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his kingdom forever. And so in these two brief phrases in verse 8 of our passage, we have the gospel in a nutshell. And Paul follows these phrases by saying at the the end of verse 8, as preached in my gospel. And so this is our gospel. If you distill it down to the most basic points of the gospel, it's this. Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Now what does Paul mean by this phrase, my gospel? Well, some... Uh, theologians, some church folks have, have said well, that, that means that, that it's not the gospel that was presented, proclaimed in the pages of Scripture, in the gospels. Paul, Paul took it and he, and he, and he warped it. And, and some people will say, Paul is the author of Christianity as it is known today. That he, he took what Jesus said, what Jesus did, and, and he altered it. And, and so people will take my gospel that Paul says, see? It's his gospel. It's not not the Apostle John's gospel. It's not Jesus' gospel. It's Paul's gospel. 
That's not what Paul means. What he means is that this is the the gospel, the good news that was given to him by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. It is so precious to him. It's so personal to him that he calls it his own. It belongs to him. It's it's not some abstraction out there that he holds it at at a remove. It belongs to him. It's his possession. And it's so precious to him that he speaks of it as his own. And that's how we should speak about the gospel. It's not something that's out there outside of ourselves. It is something that belongs to us. It's been given to us as a precious gift. And it's so precious and personal to him that he suffers for it. In verse 9 he says, For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. It's because of this gospel that is his gospel that he's in prison. That he's in chains. Paul's gospel is something for which he is willing to suffer and for which ultimately he will die. It is the reason that he's bound with chains, like a common criminal. Now, people who, who, who wish to formulate another gospel, now think about this, if Paul has just formulated another gospel, something different from what was taught in the gospels themselves, if he's warped it, what do people do when they, when they come up with another gospel? They do so not so that they'll suffer for it, They do so in order to make their lives easier. They they warp the gospel, they twist the gospel so that it comports much more easily with the prevailing winds of the culture. That's the direction they go in. And so so often when the gospel is, is, is warped, it's perverted... What does it so often end up saying, this, this new kind of gospel, this other gospel? Well, Jesus is not divine. And so every religion that has derived itself from Christianity, that's one of the first places it goes, is to water down the divinity of Christ. Paul does not do that in any way. Paul, Paul further enunciates what it means that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who came in the flesh. And that's exactly what we are to do as well. We don't warp it. It's our gospel and it is robust. It's not reduced in any way. We don't take anything away from it. Now the same word that's translated criminal in verse 9 of the ESV, it's used of the criminals who hung on those crosses beside Jesus. The implication is that just as Jesus was treated like a common criminal, so Paul is willing to be treated that way for Jesus' sake. But though Paul is in prison, the gospel is not. He says, but the word of God is not bound. It's not hindered by Paul's imprisonment. And you remember when we uh, worked our way through the book of Philippians, what did we learn? Paul Paul took full advantage of the changing of the the Praetorian Guard. And we speculated that that he he possibly proclaimed the gospel to thousands of these these imperial soldiers who, who who were directly a part of the Roman court. He was, he was preaching the gospel to the creme, creme de la creme of, of the Roman uh, soldiery, the Roman army. The gospel is not hindered by the suffering of those who proclaim it. In one sense, the gospel, in a sense, we have to be careful by this, and we say this, the gospel is in one sense enhanced by the suffering of those who proclaim it because it shows that the people who are proclaiming it really believe it and they're willing to suffer because of it. The willingness on the part of Paul to suffer for the gospel indicates the strength of his conviction that his gospel is true. 
And it is just because of the truth of the gospel, its life-giving power, that Paul is willing to endure suffering. He says in verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. For Paul, his own personal conversion, his own personal redemption will never be far from him. The, the, the wondrous work of salvation that is, that is chief to Paul, that is foremost in his mind, is his own salvation. And how could he forget it? He was more resistant than anybody we know to the gospel, and yet the Lord Jesus Christ met him and broke him down and forced the gospel upon him. Paul was not going in search of Jesus any more than Adam and Eve were going in search of the Lord in the garden. Well, verse 10, there's a, there's a shift away from focusing on suffering, as he has been, to focusing on enduring. Prior to verse 10, Paul mentions suffering four times in the first one and a half chapters of this book. After verse 10, suffering is mentioned only one other time in chapter 4, verse 5, where Paul commands Timothy to endure suffering. And so he brings the two concepts of endurance and suffering together. Now, I must say, I've always thought that I would be willing to endure anything for the sake of my family. I would be willing to do whatever it takes in order for for my family to be provided for, to be cared for, to be protected. That has yet to be tested in its fullest form. It's tested in in small ways. I think you all know this. Those of you who who have a family, you have a a husband or a wife, you have children, you you want to take care of them. You You want to do what you have to do. But for Paul, his willingness to endure suffering has been tested. And his ability to endure has been proven to be true. But this endurance, it isn't for his family. It's not for his blood relatives that Paul is willing to endure everything. It is for the sake of the elect. Those who for Paul were these nameless, faceless people out there, but, but who, whom Paul held very dear... For Paul, the elect weren't some sort of abstraction. They were very real to him. And he understands more fully because he thought he was of the elect when he was merely a a Pharisee among the Jews. He thought he was of God's elect people, God's chosen people, prior to, to the Lord Jesus Christ subduing him and ruling over him and drawing him to himself by the power of the Spirit. He thought he was of the elect. Now he understands it more fully. And he's willing to do everything that he can for the sake of the elect. So that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. For Paul, he has never forgotten. He's never left behind. His joy at his own salvation has never diminished. Why is that? Because he has dutifully remembered the Lord Jesus Christ. He's remembered that he's risen from the dead. He's remembered that he is the offspring of David. He understands that this is the gospel in a nutshell. But Paul doesn't leave it there in his own mind. He understands what Jesus Christ did for him, and he knows that Jesus Christ will do it for the full number of the elect. He will not let anyone perish who belongs to him. In his willingness to endure, Paul had the same mind as Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 10 say, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul treats everyone he encounters as if they are of the elect. He does. And that's why he's so diligent to proclaim the good news to them because he doesn't know who is of the elect and who isn't. And so it's a presumption there. It's, 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 it is a presumption, but it's a gracious presumption, isn't it? He's not presuming that, well, they're all going to hell anyway. Why bother? He goes around saying, this person might be my brother. This person might be my sister. They just don't know it yet. Let's see. Let's find out. That's how he engages with others. Just as Jesus Christ was willing to endure death, even for those who were his enemies, so Paul was willing to endure every hardship, even death, for the elect, all of whom are enemies of Christ until they are made alive by the Holy Spirit. And Paul endures so that the elect might obtain the same salvation that he has obtained. That is the calling and the duty of an apostle, but it's also the calling and duty of Timothy, the pastor of this church in Ephesus, And so it's the calling and duty of all pastors so that God's elect people might be brought in and obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. This eternal glory. We could push it a little further, though. It's the duty of every believer. It's not your duty to carry it out in the exact same way that your pastor carries out his calling. But it is the duty of all of us to love our neighbor. Be gracious to them, to show them the way of the Lord Jesus Christ, to live, in a, to live a life that is, that, is, that is becoming of those who name the name of Jesus Christ. To not be a detriment so that people look with scorn upon those who name the name of Christ. A derision. But to live godly lives. To live lives that are glorifying to the Lord. Lives that will cause our neighbors to look upon the faith that we hold, the gospel that we hold so dear, look upon it with favor and not with animosity. Let's look now to the second part of the sermon, a trustworthy saying. In these next three verses, Paul moves on to what he describes as a trustworthy saying. And, And in this saying, there is a shift in Paul's language. Up to this point, he's been speaking about Jesus Christ. He's been talking about his endurance of suffering. And he also spoke of his own, Paul's own endurance of suffering for the sake of the elect. But now he shifts to the common experience of suffering that we all as Christians must endure. Verses 11 to 13 say this, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him... He also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Jesus Christ endured the cross and all of the suffering associated with it for the hope that was set before him. He knew that his death and resurrection would result in the salvation of his people. He asked for that cup to be taken away, but he said, Thy will, not my will, be done. And he did it. He went to the cross willingly. Paul endured beatings, shipwrecks, lashes, imprisonment, the hatred of his own people, the Jews, all for the sake of proclaiming the gospel to God's elect. 
And all of us as Christians endure suffering and hardship because we will one day reign with Jesus Christ in glory. We participate in the sufferings of Christ when we're persecuted because of our faith in Jesus Christ. This trustworthy saying is regarded by many to be an early Christian hymn. One commentator has even suggested, based on Romans 6, especially verse 7 of Romans chapter 6, where it says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. This this commentator suggests that the hymn in in 2 Timothy chapter 2 actually derives from Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul would have been writing this letter to Timothy from a Roman prison, about a decade after he had written his letter to the believers in Rome. And so over the course of that decade, it is quite possible. It's it's plausible, at least. There's no way to know for sure, but it's possible that some of the teachings in Romans had made their way already into the hymns of the church. Now, this trustworthy saying, which might possibly be a hymn, it consists of four statements. The first two statements relate to those who remain true and endure. The second two statements relate to those who fail to endure and falter in their faith. Verse 11 contains the first statement, which promises that if we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. Paul is saying that just as Jesus Christ died and is now risen from the dead, if we are united to Christ in his death, we will also be united to Christ in his resurrection from the dead. If you died with Jesus Christ, you have been raised with Jesus Christ. You are no longer dead in sins. You are alive. You've been set free. Sin is no longer the controlling power over you that it once was. And so as we saw earlier, this is a direct echo of Romans chapter 6, verse 8. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have died with him and you have been raised with him. You are spiritually alive today by the same power of which Jesus raised Jesus back to life from the dead. You have that resurrection power. It has already worked in your life. And verse 12 draws on this. Paul says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. To be an heir of the Lord Jesus Christ means that you share in some way. You don't partake, you don't share in his divinity. We will never be anything more than creatures. But you do get to share in his reign. Whatever that means. I don't fully understand it myself. Enduring in our faith, enduring under sufferings, will end with reigning with Christ. Part of our co-inheritance with Christ is that we will reign with him forever. And Jesus spoke of this when he said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The twelve apostles will sit on thrones around the Lord Jesus Christ. And somehow we who are the beneficiaries of the apostolic teaching, somehow we who are the descendants, the spiritual descendants of the twelve apostles, we too will reign with Jesus Christ. However, a failure to endure, a denial of Christ has the opposite outcome. The second half of verse 12 says this, If we deny him, 
he also will deny us. Now that's a scary thought. It's a scary thing to hear. We have to keep something in mind here. This type of denial is not like the three denials of Jesus by Peter. Peter ultimately was restored, wasn't he? Peter denied Jesus three times, and Jesus restored Peter. On on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and three times he said, Do you love me, Peter? Peter said, Yes. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Three times. Peter was restored. This kind of denial that that is being talked about in our passage is not like the denials of Peter. It's the kind of denial that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is apostasy. This is the ultimate falling away. Peter's denials of Jesus would fit into the category of the final statement in our passage in verse 13, that of temporary faithlessness, temporary unbelief. And remember, if this is a hymn, and that's why certain translations do set it, set it off in, in, in a poetic format, if it's a hymn, how many hymns do you know? Maybe there are a few, but how many do you know that end on such a bleak note? Why is it that in, the Western, in Western civilization, almost every movie, except for some of these Eastern European movies that are kind of strange, we must admit, in Western civilization, most movies, most literature, it ends in some, sort of, some form of redemption. We're obsessed with a happy ending, in a sense. And it's because of the gospel. It's because of the influence of the gospel in Western civilization, in Western culture. And the same is true of our hymns. So yes, there, there's, a, there's a bleak section here. If, if we deny him, he will also deny us. But, but verse 13, this final statement there, it's talking about this temporary faithlessness. What the statement in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12b is speaking of is a denial to the very end, a denial not followed by repentance and faith. It is, a, it is therefore a denial that will result in Jesus denying that person before his father. Another way to understand this is that it is the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin that's talked about in a couple of places in the New Testament. That's what Paul is talking about here in 2 Timothy 2, 12b. That will result in Jesus denying that person before his father. Depart from me, I never knew you. That's what it's referring to. It's an ultimate denial rather than a temporary one. Verse 13 provides relief after the tension produced in verse 12. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, there has been debate among those who who are scholars in the New Testament over exactly what is meant by faithless. Is it unbelief or is it unfaithfulness? Hopefully you note the difference between the two. Unbelief meaning that a person doesn't believe at all. There is a lack of faith or a lack of faithfulness. The second of the two options fits the context best. Despite our momentary unfaithfulness, Jesus remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his true nature, which is to be eternally faithful to his word. And so the the fourth statement might be clarified by translating it this way. Although we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. 
Although we fail in our faith, although our faith may become weak, though we may falter in our faith, Jesus Christ cannot deny himself. He cannot go against his promises, even when we fail to keep our promises. He cannot. He will not. He is always faithful. Jesus said to, in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of, my, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Nothing Nothing can separate you from the love of the Lord in Jesus Christ. And so if Jesus were to abandon us when we falter in our faith, he would prove to be unfaithful. He would be untrue to his word in John chapter 10. To, deny, to, to abandon us would be to deny himself. And that is one of the things that is impossible for Jesus Christ to do. He cannot, he will not deny himself. He will not break a single one of the promises that he has made to his people. And the proof that Jesus will always be faithful to his people, it's found going back to the first verse of our passage today. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. You want proof that Jesus Christ is faithful to keep his promises? You want proof that he will never deny you? Despite the fact that you have been unfaithful to him in this life? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. If you need assurance that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you, look to the fact of his resurrection. If the power of death could not keep him down, your temporary bouts with unfaithfulness will not drive him away. You and I, we are prone to wander. We're prone to leave the Lord we love. Jesus Christ is not. What does he say he will do for the wandering sheep? He'll believe the 99 and go after the one. That's not wandering. That's search and rescue. It's bringing us back home. That is what your faithful Savior, your faithful shepherd does for his sheep. If our temporary bouts with unfaithfulness drove Jesus away, it would mean that Jesus is not the one whom the Bible says he is. It would mean, if that were true, which is not, if that were true, it would mean that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God who came in the flesh to die and to be raised so that we might live with him forever. But brothers and sisters, here's the good news. Here's, here's the resolution of that minor key. Brings us back to the major key. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, and the proof of that is the empty tomb. He was and is and continues to be raised from the dead. And he sits at his Father's right hand making intercession for you, his sheep. 
And he knows every one of his sheep by name. All of the elect are precious to him. And he will not suffer for any of them to be lost. He will not allow it. He will not permit it. He ensures the salvation of his people. Because he is the good shepherd. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that we, when we are unfaithful, when we are faithless, when our faith, faith grows weak, when we are low in spirit, we're thankful, dear Lord, that you are faithful. We're thankful, O oh Lord Jesus Christ, that you are true to your word, that you will never leave us, nor will you forsake us. We're thankful that when we stray, when we wander, you come out searching for us, you look for us, and you bring us back home. You are our shepherd. Lord, we're thankful that you have given us faithful men. Like the Apostle Paul, like Pastor Timothy. That you've given us men to have oversight in a temporal sense, in an earthly sense. They're under shepherds for sure. But you've placed them in our lives to walk with us and to work with us. And we're grateful, dear Lord. We pray that you will shepherd your shepherds and that you, O Lord, will shepherd your sheep. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and we do remember him, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Amen.